Okay, before I go into questions, I wanted to make one or two caveats from this morning and, and give an illustration. Um, so as I was thinking about the older brother syndrome um, and, and what's going on with Luke 15, the two caveats. One, I don't think that um, Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son, excludes um, verification. What I mean by that is, later on in Luke's gospel, when Zacchaeus claims repentance, he is willing to, re, um, to restore whatever he's stolen. And so if a thief comes and says, I repent, and awesome, fantastic, I want to have the heart of the Father, but I think it can be valid. Are you, are you now willing to restore what you stole? Uh, so part of what's key here is the prodigal in his language, his recognition of his sin is, is indicating clearly he's repentant, and I think frequently in times there are, um, there are things that would go along with repentance to validate it. That does, now what I'm trying to say is the story of the prodigal doesn't mean that anytime someone walks up and says, hey, I'm sorry, we're, we're the older brother if we do anything further than that. I think our attitude should be one of, yeah, yeah, we want this to be real. Um, the reason I say that is I'll give you a little church history. In, in, uh, in October, we're going to start a five-week series um, this is the 500th year of the Reformation. I don't know if you know that, but this October, this Reformation Day, will mark 500 years since that fateful day when Martin Luther nailed his 95 protestations to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. And, um, and there are five key solas, alones, that were rediscovered, celebrated in the Reformation. We're going to look at sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola um, gratia, by grace alone. Sola fide, through faith alone. Sola Christus, in Christ alone. Sola dea gloria, to the glory of God alone. And we're going to take a week looking at why are these doctrines important, why do they matter back then, and, and why, um, why do they matter now? Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And when you look at the Roman Catholic Church and how it got where it is and was, one of the big events that shifted it on that pattern occurred in the early fourth century. And, and if you look at the, the Roman Catholic um, teachings on penance and all of the ugliness of the fruit that that bears and how that works on people flagellating themselves, people um, beating themselves, all of that came from something that I think we can be very sympathetic with. In the early 4th century, Christianity was legalized. Constantine became emperor. He conquered in the name of the cross. God gave him victory in some battles. And all of a sudden, the church goes from persecuted to the law of the land. And what happened, what the church faced was this dilemma where all of a sudden, all of these Christians, professing Christians who had copted out, who had, who had offered incense to Caesar, who had sacrificed to the gods, who had turned in the, the scripture and the sacred books, were now returning in droves, claiming repentance, wanting to be rejoined with the faith. And I want you to imagine how difficult that would be if you and your family had been faithful, if your wife had been martyred, if your children had been crippled through beatings because you refused to renounce Christ, because you were faithful. And here in come the Joneses, who at the first sign and sniff of trouble offered sacrifices to Caesar, and now, all of a sudden, they say they're really sorry, and they want you, you're now looking at the prospect of having to worship alongside of them. And the church almost divided at that point. And the problem was, uh, the reasoning of them was, that until another persecution arises, 
there will be no opportunity for these people to verify the legitimacy of their claims at repentance. So what do we do? Well, the solution they came up with in the fourth century was we'll come up with our own means of verification. We'll create penance. But I want you to get just how challenging that would be. I mean, just imagine the faith and the love and the hope it would take to view that not as how the Joneses think they're getting back in now. Now the, now the wind's changed. <laughs> now they're back. Yeah, right. To rather thinking, man, wouldn't it be amazing that God's grace would even cover people and reach so far as to, to, to fold around people who've denied Christ. But that's, but that's where the older brother syndrome, I mean, there's even debates among the church of who got to decide what the penance was. Should it be the bishops and the cardinals, or should it be those who suffered the most? I mean, there's even discussions about that. And, but that is the origin of, of penance, was um, people struggling with a large portion of the church suffered, was martyred, persecuted, and now these people who, who, who grossly sinned, betrayed the faith, sold out, now they claim repentance and they want back in. And, and that little older brother and all of us stood up and said, oh, heck no. And they will give you some things to do. You go suffer and you go, um, you endure some pain and suffering and prove to us you're serious and then we'll let you back in. And that's where it came from. And so 2,000, you know, not 2,000, 1,600 years on from that, we can see the bad fruit that is born, but I, I am very sympathetic to just how challenging it would be if I lost one of my kids, I lost my wife, because they would not bow the knee to Caesar, they would not buckle, and in come the Joneses, who, you know, the second it even started to get rough, copped it out, and now they want to worship alongside of me, take the Lord's table alongside of me, be in fellowship with me. Man, that would be difficult. Anyway, that's, that's just sort of the, the two caveats I wanted to make, was just, this is, this is hard stuff. With that, any questions about that or anything else from this morning? Anybody? Oh, we got one in the back. At the end of the service, you, you said that there were um, some things that we need to do. And you said, one, we need to recognize that, that we're the older brother. Yes. Then I didn't get any more after oh. the one. So was there... Okay, so, so the three things that I think to do, because I, don't, I didn't want the message to simply be, oh, guess what, you stink. Like, oh, great. I, get, I was talking to Jay Copper after this. He's like, so basically, I get, the I get the worst of both worlds. I'm the prodigal and the older brother. <laughs> yep. And, and the point isn't simply to, to be like, you know, bad dog and scold, because even here, Jesus is appealing to them. I, I'm still marveling at Jesus' grace, patience, and mercy to the Pharisees. I mean, they're doing something so ugly. And he doesn't just light into them. He doesn't just, I mean, he, he's done that earlier. You fools. Woe to you, woe to I me. Mean, he, he's got that form. He can do that. We've seen Jesus do that. And here, he's, let me, hey, let me show you something. Do you see this is beautiful? Do you see this? And so I would suggest then to, to people like me and you who identify, man, that, 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 that's me, 
that just as the Father leaves the feast to come out, so the Father is inviting us in. And, and so the first point was basically, don't think this is a small issue. Don't think, well, because we're all the older brother, therefore it's okay. No, we've seen, don't blink and look away from the ugliness. This is ugly. And if this rules and controls a heart, this is damning. This is not a, a, a regenerate heart. At the end of the day, if you refuse to celebrate with what God celebrates with, you will hate heaven. Because heaven will be, in part, a big celebration of the prodigal, right? So if your heart, at the end of the day, doesn't sync up with God's joy and God's heart, you're not part of his family. So we, we need to deal with this aggressively. That'd be the first point. So recognize this is, this is, a, this is a big deal. This is not a small little, you know, we, I, we all wrestle with, you know, impatience. This is, this is bad. Second, remember the graces we have. The father's response to the brother is, you always have me and everything I have is yours. That right now we have fellowship with God and in the future we inherit all of creation. And so in light of that, is it really a big deal that so-and-so got the promotion I didn't, that so-and-so got the husband or wife I didn't? Is it, do you think 10 million years from now you're still going to be bitter about that? Really? Can you trust that God can be gracious and knows what he's doing? And then third was to begin to en- try to enter into that joy. And what's the father ultimately pleading? Come on, come on into the party. And I can almost picture the older brother, well, well okay, I guess I can go. You know, he walks, you know, and... and you begin, instead of taking your, your righteous stand, I, I'll try to see what's beautiful in this. I'll try to see what's beautiful in God being gracious to this person that I think deserves discipline. I'll, I'll try to see it. Those, I guess, were the three steps that I was trying to view. View it as serious. Remember the grace and the riches of grace you have. And begin to try to rejoice with those who rejoice and to celebrate God's goodness and grace in the lives of others. Just begin to try to see it. That's at least what I got from this text. So I know those weren't on the notes, but that's, that was my three sort of so what's or what to do about it type of things. Other thoughts or questions? Oop. And then we got one in the back. Anna, can you get the mic to the back? Be the other microphone person. Well, this is just more of a, a thought than a question that you gave the example of if you've been a barren woman and then you, some uh, an unwed mother, an unwed teenager in your church gets pregnant. And what came to my mind since I taught so long was the mother who has six children and each one of them taken away from her because she's a horrible mother. That would be much harder to give grace to. And I think all you could do in that situation is say, God is good. No, and, and it gets complicated. I even tried to say this in the message. I, I don't think, I was talking to Pastor Daniel about this earlier today. I don't think... And let's take the barrenness because it's something the scriptures again and again and again empathize with, right? So you've got Hannah, Samuel's mother, crying out, God, and the Lord has taken away my reproach in her prayer. Um, and, and Sarah, Abram's wife. And so we know God, this is real suffering, and we know that God empathizes with this real suffering. So you're, you're a family, you're struggling for about a year and a half, two years, Serena and I thought maybe we aren't going to be able to have kids. And so when someone gets pregnant, there is a, uh, there's a sense in which this thing that I want is put right in front of my face. I mean, imagine you're starving, 
and all of a sudden you see you go right by on a cart a nice juicy steak. I mean, there's a sense which, yeah, that's, it makes the, it harder. You long for it more. So I don't think that just because you feel a pang of sorrow, you've necessarily the older brother. I think the test is, can I rejoice with this good thing for this other person? Can I go to the baby shower? Even as I'm grieving over this good thing, the scripture says is good, that, uh, that I don't have, that I want, that, that the scriptures indicates is real suffering. I'm suffering. Um, Hannah clearly was. So I don't think it means all you have to be is happy for that person. I think there can be a sorrow for the single person who wants to be married and, and they go to the wedding. And, you know, and, but there also needs to be, I will rejoice with those who rejoice. And, and I can see the goodness and still celebrate. And it's the both end. I'm inwardly perishing, outward, I mean, inwardly renewed, outwardly perishing, that I can recognize, yeah, I do, this is good. And I want this and I don't have it. And I'm sad that that's difficult. Lord, give me contentment, but I'm so glad that they have it, type of thing. Um, additionally, you see someone wasting or abusing. God's given them this grace, and they're a terrible parent, so much so that the state comes in and takes their kids. And that's ugly. That's really ugly. And again, the, the temptation would be to conflate the things and to say, um, God, why on earth did you give kids to this awful parent? Well, the kids were still a good gift. Scripture insists children are a blessing. God gave this one a blessing. And she squandered it. Okay. So that's wicked. Either that wickedness will be paid for by that woman in hell or by Jesus on the cross, to which would you add your wrath? And I've got to remind myself of that because when I'm getting angry, which one would I want? It's either them in hell and I've got a stone in my hand and I'm saying, okay, you're paying for God's wrath but not mine. And you, you lob a stone at their forehead. Or here's Jesus on the cross saying, okay, I'm, I am paying for this woman's sin. And again, Jesus, you're paying for God's wrath, and that's good, but now you've got to deal with mine, too, and I'm throwing a rock at him. To which one of those would I say, justice is not done, I need to add my own wrath? You've got to counsel yourself, because my heart wants to rise up within me, and say, everything, that I, everything that is legitimately ugly in that, God is ten times or a thousand times more offended by than I am. It's, go, to, go to 1 Peter uh, 2. 1 Peter 2.13 is another just bread and butter self-counsel verse that I have. It's not, the answer to these problems is not, it doesn't matter. The answer to these problems is not, no, it's not bad. Jesus does not resolve this with the Pharisees by saying, no, these people aren't wicked. They are, they're terrible. The answer for this is, but God is keeping score and counts will be settled. Trust that. So Jesus, in verse um, 22 of 1 Peter 2, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now the argument here is from the greater to the lesser. Jesus is more righteous than you and I are. If anyone had the right to complain when they're mistreated, it's Jesus. And so the arguments could be if he didn't and he was righteous, how much less do we? Greater to the lesser. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus did not say, it doesn't matter. Jesus did not say, oh, I deserve this. What he simply said is, my father will judge the earth in righteousness. This will work itself out. That's what we need to say. So when somebody does something terrible, the woman doesn't appreciate the gift of children, and they're taken from her, that sin will be judged to your satisfaction and my satisfaction, because the final judgment is a public judgment, right? So 
as, as I, I, I forget who says it, I've heard it so many times, justice will be done and justice will be seen to be done. We won't have to take God's word on it. uh, Trust me, now we do. Right now we have to take God's word, take it by faith. God says, I will judge the world in righteousness. Then it will be seen to be done. And nobody will say, well, you didn't really take care of this or that or the other thing. We will see justice done perfectly. The challenge is, can we wait on God's justice or must we make our own? so no, that, you're, you're right. And, and we could think of other, t- tons of other examples as well of, of wasted grace, people not appreciating the grace. You're starving for a morsel of food and this person's just throwing food away. You know, you're, you're, you're barely able to pay your rent and this person, Lord, did they really need another $10 million? <laughs> you know, did they, was that really so urgent for them? Come on. And yeah. And at the end of the day, what Pastor Daniel, the other thing Pastor Daniel read from Luke 17, we did communion. When we've done all that's required of us, we've, we were only unworthy servants. Did, do we expect God to give us a big paycheck? You know, are, are we working for him in that sense? Like we get, we get paid? He's told us, I'll give you everything I have. And then we just need to be faithful as best we can. But if we're still working on this debit debt system, we're not operating like a family. You know, but but we were hardwired. I mean, I did not need to train my children to say that's not fair. Didn't need to. They didn't. I didn't say who'd you learn that from, right? In fact, one of the things I periodically will do will be to give a blessing to one kid and not another, just to try to train them. I don't do this. Try to do it all the time, but periodically, um, or more to push back against the. Like we went we went to soccer the other day, and I, t- I drove home with my mom and with Sophie and Zadik, and stopped and got the kids some ice cream. And Serena found out. She's like, oh, Abner didn't get ice cream. That's okay. Like, I, don't, I mean, to do that constantly would be to provoke him, but he needs to learn, like, hey, your brother and sister are going to have a blessing, and you didn't, and that's okay. I certainly don't want him to think, I am now owed ice cream. You, you, you are, there's an ice cream debt, <laughs> and I've got a coupon that entitles me, because remember that one time when I didn't have ice cream, and, no, something could happen to your brother and sister. Yeah, okay. Bryce. So this is a question we can only speculate on, so just fair warning. Uh, but uh, you think there's any significance as to how chapter 15 ends in Luke, how it's just was once was dead, now is alive, and then it seems like Jesus completely changes his audience and starts talking right to the disciples, but there's, no, there's nothing noted here about on like how the Pharisees reacted, what they thought, what was going through their heads. Do you think there's any significance to that? Yes, yes, I do. That's not unusual. That type of end break happens repeatedly with the Pharisees. Go, go back to the dinner with Simon the Pharisee, right? Um, where is that, 8? Luke 8? Um, is that 8? Where is it? 7? Yeah, 7. Sorry, the end of 7, right? So Jesus, again, being gentle with a Pharisee, he's at the house of Simon. Simon sees the woman come in, weep on Jesus' feet, wash his feet with her hair, and he thinks to himself, if this man really were a prophet, he'd know what sort of woman this is. And Jesus doesn't tear him open, which he can and at times does do. And so he begins to speak to him by name, which is some sign of kindness or respect. And then the account just ends. We don't know how Simon responds. It just, I mean, look at it. Um, 
So verse 47, therefore I tell you her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much but he who is forgiven little loves little and he said to her your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table began to say to themselves who is this who forgives sins and he said to the woman your faith has saved you go in peace. Well how does, did Simon listen? Did Simon get the lesson? Did he, rep- I don't know. And partly is because we're gonna find the ultimate answer did the Pharisees listen to him when we get to the crucifixion? And the answer is gonna be no. The answer is going to be no. But we saw the same thing in 14. I'm sure there are other examples. So Jesus tells the parable of the wedding feast and how you didn't want to come, so I'm going to go invite some, some losers. I'm going to invite the, the lame, the blind, the poor. And uh, verse 24, for I tell you, none of those who are invited shall taste of my banquet. How did they respond? Did they get mad? Did they listen? We don't know. He just moved on. Part of what I was saying is we're in a section now that's going to ping pong back and forth between Jesus teaching the Pharisees and Jesus teaching the disciples. So it just starts to now Jesus teaching the disciples. Then 15 begins with him teaching the Pharisees. 16 begins, he also said to his disciples, right? But then we ping pong back in verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard these things, and they ridiculed him, saying, and he talks to them. And then he's going to ping pong back in 17. He said to his disciples, 1720, being asked by the Pharisees. 1722, he said to his disciples. 189, he told them a parable to those, the Pharisees, who loved, trusted in money and, and viewed themselves righteous and viewed out of this with contempt. 1815, they were bringing in infants to him, and then he... And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him, but Jesus called them. He speaks to his disciples. We're going back and forth, disciples, Pharisees, disciples, Pharisees, disciples, Pharisees, till we get to Jerusalem. And so, yeah, there, there's, there's, we're learning positively and negatively <laughs> as he's going to positively instruct his disciples. And through the correction and rebuke he gives to the Pharisees, we're learning through contrast what not to do. So, yeah, there, frequently we're seeing as he deals with the Pharisees, it left open-ended. How are they going to respond? Well, the final answer of how they respond is going to be seen when we get into the chapter 20s where Jesus gets crucified. No. They're going to say no. We, we, aren't, we aren't having any of this. But yeah. So that's, that's I think, the significance. Anyone to add to that or, or press, press on further with that? But that's the structurally what's going on is we're just bouncing back and forth. And, and Luke's not interested because ultimately the Pharisees are a lost cause. So he, I think he's recounting this for us to hear that we can learn from it. This isn't the story of how the Pharisees were redeemed because they're not going to listen. This is the story of how Jesus reached out to them again and again and again and again. The father left the banquet and came out and implored them to enter. And we can learn from that and see the father's love. But ultimately, the story is not about the Pharisees who eventually learn their lesson and come in. They're going to they're gonna nail them to a tree. Um, in fact, MacArthur, I was asked, where's Elsa? I... Um, Elsa asked me if I was going to, MacArthur did I think like an eight part series on this, um, classic MacArthur. But he added the final bit where he, 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 he takes the story of the prodigal son and he says it's really unfinished because we don't know how the prodigal responds. He goes, so let me give you the final chapter in the story. The prodigal, not the prodigal, the older brother kills his father. Because <laughs> in essence, that's what the Pharisees are going to do. They hear this answer. Do they listen? Do they say, you know, you're right. You're right. That's a good point, dad. I, I do have you, and I'm going to inherit everything. And he is my brother, after all. Yeah, I'll come into the feast. I'll come celebrate. No, if, if the older brother's the Pharisees, what does the older brother do? He takes his dad and crucifies him. And in an honor culture, that almost makes sense. How do, you, how do you deal with shame in a family? You kill. The father has 
allowed this reproach. The father has allowed first the son to slap him in the face saying, I want you dead, give me the money. He doesn't squash him. He, he shamefully divides his property up. And then when this wastrel comes back, rather than saying grovel in the dirt, get lost, go somewhere else, he takes him back in and honors him. Now the father's complicit in bringing shame to the family. And how do you, how do you purge shame from the family? You kill the offending party. I mean, we've got honor cultures today that do that. So in his treatment of this, Basically, he argues that the last, if, if, the parab- if this parable had its final response, it would be the older brother crucifying the father, which is typologically what happens because if the older brother is the Pharisees, what do they do? They, they kill the messenger who shows such grace. So, yeah. But yeah, we don't know how, I mean, the parable, we don't know how it ends. It just sort of ends there. Other questions? Should I bust out the guitar? We can sing some songs or something. Greg. I was just sitting here thinking that the older brother syndrome can affect us in... um, in the Great Commission, uh, mm-hmm. we can look at people that we don't want to reach out to. We can even, I've known people that come, came to faith on their deathbed. Uh, if they were a loved one, we may rejoice in that. Right. If they weren't, we might be a little thinking, uh, well, well, how's that, you know, how's that okay, you know? Right. Uh, I'm afraid I'm, I'm guilty of I have always not liked the, the prodigal story. Um, I'm afraid I'm guilty of being that older brother, right. uh, of thinking that that doesn't seem just. Right. Um, and, uh, th- I mean, this is, uh, your teaching on this is, has tweaked me, um, uh, rightfully, of course. Right. Of course, of course. <laughs> No, it, we struggle with this. We struggle. One of the things we, one of the things we're to get to when we do the series on the five solas of the five solas, the five alones, the one I didn't have my head wrapped around the most, in regards to its historical significance, was grace alone. I understood that um, Luther had to deal with in Scripture alone. Is it Scripture and Church tradition and Church councils and the Pope, or is it Scripture? No, Scripture alone, and that's the significance of Scripture alone. And Faith alone was clear. Is it faith and works or just faith? And Christ alone, or is it Christ and the merit of all of the saints who were better than they needed to be? And is it the glory of God alone, or do we pray to and praise dead saints? I get all this, but where did grace alone fit in? So I'm reading a book on that, and I'm convinced that we really struggle with grace in, in a way that we wouldn't expect we do. I could go back to Exodus 33. Um... And one other parable that I think you're not going to like, too. <laughs> and I wrestle with it as well, Greg. I, I appreciate your, your candid honesty on that. But Exodus 33. Um, Exodus 33. And, and think about this in regards to the, um, the unfolding of, of salvation history, by which I mean we go from only having oral, oral reports of God and his deeds to Moses writing the Pentateuch. 
And so this is the first inscripturated revelation of who God is. And so the Israelites who've been taken out of Egypt, who've heard stories, they've heard reports, now for the first time are getting written scripture and we're learning who God is. And so God is revealing himself progressively, and we learn more about God as more of the Bible gets written. And, and so the very first revelation of God in Scripture is the, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what we call the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. And in that, what has God done in the story? Well, um, God created, and God went to the garden, and he sought out the man and the woman, and God cursed, and God gave grace, and God judged the world, and God called Abraham, but we really don't have God having a lot to say about who he is. I would suggest to you that Moses' experience up on Sinai um, after the golden calf is, is probably the first place God starts expositing or expounding on who he is verbally. He shows who he is by what he does, but here's some of the first times God starts talking about himself. I mean, think about it. When does God first reveal his covenant name? I am. Exodus 5 of the burning bush. So this is where we start to get the revelation of who God is, not just through action and deed, but through explanation and description. And so Moses is up on the mountain, and um, he has just conceded, the Lord has just conceded that he will go, his presence will go with Israel up from here. Verse 17, and the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name. So here is Moses saying, Lord, I want to know your glory. What makes you so great? What makes you so wonderful? What is your glory? And I want you to notice what God says. First answer. He's got a longer answer and there's more to come. But what's his first answer? What is his glory? The Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Right out of the gate. I'm the Lord, and I mercy who I mercy. Which is to say, I, I, I mercy who I please. My mercy and my grace is free. And we get really uncomfortable with that. Um, now, keep your finger here. Go to Romans 11. Oh, I don't need to keep your finger here. You can, you can just let go of Exodus 33. I don't think we'll go back to Exodus 33. But now go to Romans 11. In Romans 11, I just want to make two points from Romans 11 and Romans 4 about grace. Uh, I'll, I'll lay it out front first. I, I think based on these two passages, you will see that grace is definitionally free and cannot be merited. That to talk about deserved grace is to talk about round squares. It's gibberish, it's meaningless. It's words that look like they have a semblance of meaning, but don't. That grace definitionally cannot be owed, cannot be merited, can't be warranted. It must definitionally be free. So why do I think that? Romans 11, um, look at five and six. So too at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So all I want to draw from that, that passage is this. Grace and works are antithetical notions. If we can establish works is present, grace is not. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. Grace Works nullifies grace. So if we're looking at something, is this a grace? If we can establish it's a work or related to works, 
we can say whatever it is, it's not a grace. You got me? That's all I'm trying to get from six. That grace and works are exclusive concepts. The presence of works nullifies grace. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. You with me? Now go to Romans 4. Um, and this isn't going to be as clear in English, but Adam can follow along in Greek and, and verify with me here. Um, what? I would hope. Okay. No, you'll be able to, you, yo, look around. You'll be able to figure this one out. Romans 4.15. Um, no, not 4.15. Um, yes, yes. No, not 4.15, sorry. It's 4, though. 4.4. Um, four. And I'll, I'll give you a, a woodenly literal translation. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not according to grace, but according to debt. That's a literal reading. It's not according to kata, kairen, right? It's not according to grace. 4.4, four, Romans 4.4. Four, four. You, can, you can see that one, right? With me? To the one who works, his wages, the results of when you work a job and then your boss gives you a paycheck, that is not a grace. The paycheck is not in accordance with grace, it's according with debt. He's in your debt. He's obligated to pay you. Fair enough? So, the, so take those two concepts, put them together. The fundamental notion of works is you're on a debt system, a payment system. I work for you, you pay me. And it's not a grace system because works nullifies grace. So works is this payment system and it's antithetical to grace. Therefore, if God is obligated in any way, shape, or form, or if you begin to think he's obligated in any way, shape, or form to be gracious, it's not grace. Whatever it is that God is obligated to do, it's not a grace. Think about that. Because we feel really uncomfortable with God saying, I grace him, I grace. We're like, well, if you're going to grace, I mean, we do this, right? Your kids come in, you give, if you're going to give a piece of candy to this kid, you have to give a piece of candy to every kid, right? You've got to be fair. And God says, yeah, I don't do that. I grace this person, not that person. I grace this person, I grace whom I grace. That's my glory. And we get really uncomfortable with that. And the second we want to say, no, God ought to be, God needs to be, God should be gracious to everybody, we are talking about round squares. It's meaningless. So, so the more I'm reading up on grace alone, I'm seeing, yeah. Because in the Roman system, they've got a whole mechanism for grace, right? That whole sacerdotal system where you, you participate and do the rites, and you get the Eucharist, and you get the baptism, and you get the ordinances, and you get Holy Communion and marriage. And so they've got this big machine that you turn the crank and out comes grace. And God is obligated to give grace. He will give grace. It works ex operatus operata through the working of the work. And out comes grace. And so that God must give grace through these things. And so in the Reformation, it's like, no, it's grace alone. And by that, as they understood it properly, by free, freely bestowed grace, you can't tie God's arm behind his back and make him give grace. He graces whom he graces. That's, that's actually how those doctrines of election and predestination became Reformation doctrines. It wasn't just that Calvin and Luther and those guys were interested in that. They, they understood that Rome had a constructed a view of the gospel where God was obligated to be gracious. Where you could force God's hand to be gracious. Where God must be gracious. And then, no, 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 no. God's grace is free. Well, you press that to a logical conclusion, and you get to places like, well, God's free to choose. God's free to elect. And we get really uncomfortable with it. So the more I've been looking at grace, the more I'm like, man, 
we've got this sort of tamed down version of grace where I'm going to give every piece of hid in the room a piece of candy and not the sort of scary, raw grace that I've been seeing in Scripture. The parable I was alluding to, Greg, is the vineyard owner who goes out at the first hour of the day and he negotiates a price with some workers and then he goes out two hours later and he brings in some more people and he goes out two hours later. And eventually there's some guys who work one hour and they get paid a full day's wage and the guys who worked the full day are thinking, man, if he pays the guys who worked one hour a full day's wage, what is he to pay us? And then they get to their turn line and they get a full day's wage. And they go, whoa. And his answer to them is, I did, exactly, I, I did totally right by you. I did exactly right by you. If I want to be super nice to these people, what business is that of yours? <laughs> we don't like grace, unless we're getting it. I like grace when I get grace. <laughs> but but that, what's the point of that parable other than, if I want to be extra nice to this person, what is that to you? Yeah, I, I, that one, I, I sympathize with those guys. Um, <laughs> that's the nature of grace. So... Am I right that that, that that parable bugs you too? Okay, me, me too, me too, I recognize that. But yeah, I mean, and it's great in abstract, but it's not so great when, you know, it's, it's real things that matter, when it's real disease, real sickness, real issues. Um, yeah. Other, yes, and then we get two, one and one. Okay. Wanda, Wanda first, then Linda. I don't know if this relates or not, but it came to my mind. You always hear she'll have more jewels in her crown. Is that scriptural? I mean, and I can recognize, oh, yeah, they deserve a whole lot more jewels than I do. I'm lucky if I get a crown. But anyway, that just came to my mind when you were talking about all of that. Is that scriptural, and does that come to anybody else's mind? The the (laughs) fact that it's jewels in a crown I don't think is scriptural. The fact that there is a... Different levels of reward is absolutely scriptural. Um, That it's clear that some people's reward in heaven will be greater than others. How that absolutely works out, not entirely sure. But passages like 1 Corinthians um, 3, if any man works, his work will will be tested with fire. And if any man's work remains, whether he built with... Um, gold or costly jewels or wood, hay, and straw. The fire will reveal it, and if anyone's work remains, he'll receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned up, he will escape as though one through flame. As we work and we labor, there will be some response, some reward for our work. Um, Jesus tells the disciples, when you are persecuted and men speak evil, you rejoice, for great is your reward in heaven. There is a sense in which if you're working to get paid later, okay, fair enough, but there's no promise of getting paid now. That's the point. Now, there is no. I mean, even, even earlier in Luke, Jesus told the parable of the, uh, the servants who are alert and awake when the master comes home, and he girds himself up and serves them. When he comes back, when he comes back, rewards will be handed out, and one will, one will, one, I mean, the parable of the talents, one who's faithful with uh, much gets you know, more to be faithful with, one who's faithful with less gets some more. So there is, there is varying degrees of reward, but it's all in, in the age to come. It's not now. So there is a sense in which, yeah, um, if you are faithful now, you're faith. Part of our motivation for being faithful now is reward then. And how that all works out, I don't, I don't know. How, how you can have a heaven where everyone's perfectly happy, and yet some are more rewarded than now. Now, Jonathan Edwards helpfully comes up with one possible illustration. I don't want to suggest Jonathan Edwards figured it out, but... 
it's helpful, I think, sometimes, if you can see, we can at least conceive of it one way that it could work. He pictures an ocean where in the ocean of God's joy, every vessel, whether it's a bathtub or a bucket or a coffee cup, is full. You, know, you, you submerge a bathtub in an ocean, it's full of water. Submerge this coffee cup in an ocean, it's full of water. Which is to say, everyone's as happy as they can be. Some people might be capable of more happiness. He's just coming up with one possible way that you can have a heaven where everyone's as happy as they can be, but some people have greater joy than others. Their capacity for joy is expanded. Now, I'm, I'm not saying Jen Edwards figured it out, but here's at least one way. Because the problem is, how do you have people with greater rewards than others but not have envy and not have, I wish I was that happy? Well, there's one conceivable way where everyone's full of joy, everyone's completely busting at the seams with blessing and joy, and yet some people's capacity is greater. He may or may not be right, but at least it's one schema where at least I can conceptually grant, okay, I, I see how these can happen, these can coexist. Linda, and then Cody. Oh, sorry, sorry, in the back row. Yeah, I wanted to... Uh, Josh. I, I, during the sermon, I actually thought of the uh, guy with 12 hours, they worked in the labor, the un, kind of the unfair thing, but uh, is it, I imagined... I imagine heaven to be kind of like function as, rather than a debt economy, rather uh, as more of a gift economy, like uh, I will operate and ex exchange of goods and services will be exchanged on how much, or not how much, but uh, through love rather than yeah. through uh, a debt system. And so in, if we, if we uh, can view it in that way rather, rather than like the older brother who viewed it as a debt system, wouldn't wouldn't people who work more be uh, have more honor? Uh, ra so rather than like, as you were exchanging, explaining through the uh, uh, the bathtub thing, like yeah. uh, the people who who suffered more and show how much, uh, as Jesus said, I will show you how much uh, you will suffer for me. We we suffer for uh, Christ out of love, or and so uh, if we. If we work more, uh, we will we have greater capacity to love. So it, it's un, it could be unfair, but uh, maybe it's the unfairness is from a uh, a greater capacity to, of love love for God. Yeah, that that's that's possible as well. Certainly, let me take what you just said and flesh it even further. Let's just say I am able to participate in the salvation of a dozen people. I'm able to be, take some small role in that. The joy of knowing that will echo forever. Let's say someone else, through their faithfulness, participates in the salvation of 100 people. I can see how there's going to be more joy for them in heaven. They're going to have 100 people that they forever get to see the consequence of their faithfulness ringing and echoing out. And not in a way that I'm discon. I mean, I only have 10. You know? um, no, it won't be like that at all. Now, yeah, and these are all just ways of conceiving it. The, the point is Jesus will say things like, whoever does this will rule over 10 cities. This person will rule over one city. There, it's not everyone gets the same thing. Now, how that plays out and what that actually means, we're just guessing at. But the notion that the reward, and, and likewise, that suffering in hell will be worse for some. It'll be better on that day for Sodom and Gomorrah than for Capernaum. Hell will be worse for Capernaumites than it will be for Sodomites. That's what Jesus says in, in Luke 10. How, again, how that works out, I don't know. Um, but there is degree of reward or joy and degree of suffering language in the scriptures. 
and so apparently so. Okay, Linda and Cody. Okay, and maybe you're going to cover this when you do the grace, so you can punt if that's the case. Okay, thank you. <laughs> but how does then the grace alone relate to the judgment seat of Christ? Because even though all of our sins are forgiven, mm. we still are going to have to give an account for everything we've done, said, thought, etc., which right. is frightening, <laughs> even yes. though we're forgiven. Yes. Um, my short answer, then I'll punt, is <laughs> I believe the grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone is fundamentally talking about salvation. But even there, beyond that, what does the Apostle Paul say? Um, I worked harder than all of them, all the apostles. Wow, that's a pretty big claim. But not I, but the grace of God in me. So even as we're working and accomplishing and doing real things, the scriptures will insist that's only an evidence of God's grace to begin with. So Paul can admit in a context where he's being criticized against the other apostles, well, you weren't one of the 12, Paul. Like, yeah, well, I worked harder than all of them. But immediately after saying that, he has to say, but, but, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God in me that was working. Um, so there is room for that, yet even all that is ultimately grace. I mean, at the end of the day, whatever faithfulness I have is not because there was some good thing in me that welled up and was faithful, but because God graced that into me. I mean, I, I'm insisting that even my faith in Christ is a gift of God and not my own. So whatever good things I have or I have done, they, they, they're alien to me originally, and they're gifted by God. But I'm gonna punt the rest of that. We got two minutes and Cody has a question. You, okay, Cody. Yeah. Two minutes if this one is uh, too long. You can I may punt as I'll punt till next week if it's too long. Go. Yeah. I guess mine was just a question about you know God's grace. You know He will have grace on who He wills and not grace on who He doesn't will, and you know His old free will and that. And you know if He owes you in any way, it's no longer grace. Um, just kind of how that goes along with the free will. If uh, if God is going to have grace on who He wills and I don't know, I just kind of like, how, how do we have free will if God is going to say, I will not have grace on you? Okay, the one-minute version. <laughs> um, like I said, if you want to take the, that to the next week. The, no, the, well, the four-hour version would be, I think to some degree, Daniel and I covered this in the four weeks we did on election predestination, so I'd go point you to, for a full answer to that. The short answer is this. Depends what people mean by free will. People ask me, do you believe in free will? Yes, given one definition, no, given the other. If by free will you mean we get to do what we want and we're not coerced, and we're not forced against our will by external forces, then of course I believe in free will. You, God says do what you want. You can do what you want. I can do what I want. Anyone who wants Christ can come to him. He's not going to be turned away. There's no invisible wall stopping people. Anyone who wants God's grace can have it. And there's plenty of passages that point to that. So, so by free will, we can do what we want. If we want to come to God for salvation, we can freely without anything hindering us. Absolutely believe that. Usually what free will means by people in the whole Calvinistic election predestination debate, what they mean by it is something bigger than that. Not simply volition, I can do what I want, but um, what is technically called counter-causal free will, by which they mean 
Um, I, in order for it to be free, according to this definition, I need to have the equal ability of two choices in any given situation. So to take a simple um, example, you're at a restaurant, you're looking at the menu, uh, I chose the burger, not the um, salad. Was that a free choice? I would have said, given the first definition, did Jeremy choose what he wanted to without anyone monkeying with his will? He, he got to choose what he wanted to choose. Was it volitional? Yes. The second group would say, no, no, no. It's only free if Jeremy had an equal possibility and an ability to order the salad. That's what they might counter-causal free will. Freedom is measured not by a lack of constraint, but you must volitionally have an equal propensity and possibility to choose the opposite. If that's what someone means by free will, no, I don't believe in free will. Um, I don't believe people who are born loving sin are free to stop loving it. I'm not free to stop loving what I love. I'm not free to start loving what I don't love. I'm not free to rearrange the dispositions and desires of my heart. I, sanctification would be really easy if it was. If I could simply, you know what? I'm going to stop loving the praise of man. It's a stupid, why do I love the praise of man? I'm just going to stop loving what people think of me. I can't do that uh, any more than I can flip a switch and like rap music. Um, I, then the most I could hope is to train myself. I'm going to learn to like it, but I can't just like what I don't like and, and stop liking what I do like. That my will, I, in other words, I don't have the, the, that type of freedom. Um, and I think for people that um, are pressing for what's called counter-causal will, you would need that type of freedom. That Even though I'm born with a disposition and the bent to love sin, I must have the ability to decide, actually, I'm going to start loving righteousness in Christ. And what the people who say with arguing counter-causal free will would say is, if you can't do that, then we're not free. To which I'm saying, okay, fine, then given that definition, we're not free. That's my two-minute answer. Um, message number two in the four-week series on election predestination, the first half of that message deals with that much more explicitly. Thank you, Cody. And with that, we're over time. God bless. See you all next week.